Hey, this is Dr. Norton. Welcome to Cymbeline, lecture number two. So we left off last time talking about the Italian wager. That's kind of where we finished. And just the question of, of, of why posthumous Leonatus would make this wager. What, what justification could he have for this? And, and the, the, there's really not a whole lot of justification, in my opinion. Um, but you may disagree with me. Uh, we'll kind of see how this play goes and see where you end up. But um, what is important in the next scenes here, though? And we see the, the working out of the Italian wager as Yachimo heads to Britannia. He goes, and he has the introduction um, from Pisanio, um, who says, Act 1, Scene 6, Madam, a noble gentleman of Rome comes from my lord with letters. And Yachmo says, Change you, madame. The worthy Leonatus is in safety and greets your highness dearly. He gives her a letter. Thank you. You're very nice. Thank you so much. And Yachmo says, in an aside here, all of her that is out of door, most rich. If she be furnished with a mind so rare, she is alone the Arabian bird, and I have lost the wager. Boldness be my friend. Arm me, audacity from head to foot, or like the Parthian I shall flying fight, rather directly fly. So, right away, he knows he's lost. At this point, he's just kind of trying not to be embarrassed. He realizes by looking at her, all that is out of door, most rich. Um, and if she has a mind so rare, wow, she's not going to go for this. This my uh, my assault or my um, my flirtation, right? And so he has this nice letter, and so forth. Um, but then he just starts making straight in, right? He says, "Thanks, fairest lady. What are men mad? Hath nature given them eyes to see this vaulted arch and the rich crop of sea and land, which can distinguish twixt the fiery orbs above and the twin stones upon the numbered beach? And can we not partition make with spectacle so precious?" Twixt fair and foul. So right away, what is his strategy? He's going to start cutting down posthumous Leonatus, right? He's going to start describing men as fools. Men like posthumous Leonatus who do what? Who go abroad. They cross a threshold. They become something different. And they lose their character. They lose their good character. And they start sleeping around. They start partying. And that, he alludes, is what posthumous Leonatus has done. Um, he starts to say things like, well, he says this on line 75, right? Um, I never saw him sad. There is a Frenchman, his companion, one an eminent monsieur that it seems much loves a gallian girl at home. He furnishes the thick sighs from him, whilst the jolly Briton, your lord I mean, laughs from his free lungs cries, Oh, can my sides hold to think that man who knows by history report or his own proof what woman is, yea, what she cannot choose but must be, wills free hours languish for assured bondage? So he's saying, Oh, no, no, your, your husband's not, not sad. He's not pining away in, in Rome. No, he's having a rip-roaring good time. He's partying. He's with the ladies. He's with men. He's having a good old time. He is flood with laughter, he says. His eyes in flood with laughter. He's having a, a 
recreation. He's having a good time and so forth. And he is meeting a lot of our ladies who are very nice to him. But then he says, lamentable. What to hide me from the radiant sun and solace in the dungeon by a snuff? Imogen says, I pray you, sir, deliver with more openness your answers to my demands. Why do you pity me? And, and why does he say that? He says, ah, this is a great series of lines here from 119 forward. Had I this cheek to bathe my lips upon? This hand whose touch, whose every touch would force the feeler's soul to the oath of loyalty, this object which take prisoners the wild motion of mine eye, fixing it only here should I, damned, then slaver with lips as common as the stairs that mount the capital, join gripes with hands made hard with hourly falsehood, falsehood as with labor, then by peeping in an eye base and illustrious as a smoky night that's fed with stinking tallow. It were fit that all the plagues of hell should at one time encounter such revolt. <laughs> uh, Imogen says, My lord, I fear, has forgot Britain. <laughs> and, and as he's, as I picture um, Yachimo as he's delivering these lines, you know, he's got this, I picture him having a really kind of suave Italian accent. Had I this cheek to bathe my lips upon, you know, I, I don't know how he's doing this exactly, but I feel like he's got a kind of a sexual, fur, full floor, full force flirtation here, right? Maybe he takes the back of his hand and he strokes her cheek and he holds her hand and, and she's looking at him like, okay, well, can you talk a little more about my husband? Because that's really what I care about. Um, and so uh, he goes on, right? Oh, dearest soul, your cause doth strike my heart with pity that doth make me sick. How, you know, basically, how could your husband betray you? You should have revenge. Be revenged, he says to her. And she says, revenged? How should I be revenged? If this be true, as I have such a heart that both mine ears must not in haste abuse, if it be true, how should I be revenged? Revenged. Um, Imogen is interesting here, right? She sees very clearly what's going on. She has a purity, an insight. She's not naive. She's not sexually experienced. She's not a woman of the world. And I think because of that, she's able to see more clearly. There is a strange kind of misnomer in our society that people with a lot of sexual experience that, that have kind of given themselves away with partying and wild living, that people like that can, can know more. They have more street smarts. But you know, in truth, that's often just the opposite. And that's kind of what Shakespeare is portraying here for us. People who, who live a wild life in many ways put themselves more deeply in bondage, in misunderstanding, in false ways, in bad habits. Um, it's like asking a, a drug addict, so how's heroin? Oh, it's the greatest thing I've ever tried in my life. It's awesome. Okay, well, I get it, but have you ever not been on heroin? Have you ever... You know, been free of drug drug abuse, and this in in freedom from drug abuse and freedom from that bondage is a greater freedom. It's what we call a positive freedom versus a negative freedom. By not sleeping around, by not um, giving myself away to others sexually, I keep myself free. This positive freedom. Now I'm free to do other things. I'm free of that kind of bondage. 
So his idea of revenge is foreign to her. Revenged, okay. So she's reading ahead, right? And, and he seems to, to misjudge her. Um, he misjudges her thinking that she'll buy this idea. So she says, if what you say is true, there is no satisfaction in my doing the same as he has done. Why would I ruin myself to get back at him? That makes no sense, logically speaking. I will not seek revenge by debasing myself, by making myself less. I will make myself more. And perhaps I can save him from his debauchery. Yachimo said, Should he make me live like Diana's priest betwixt cold sheets whilst he is vaulting variable ramps in your despite upon your purse? Revenge it! I dedicate myself to your sweet pleasure, more noble than that runnigate to your bed, and will continue fast to your affection, still close as sure. And here, clearly, he's like getting close to her face or close to her body or something because she yells for help. <laughs> he is getting too close. He's getting uh, too friendly. And he says, oh, I will be a minister to you. You can have sex with me <laughs> and get revenge on your husband. And she's, she's like, you're an idiot. This is not revenge. This is not what I want. And what I do want is you to get the heck away from me, you creep. So she yells for Pisanio to come to her aid. And he says, oh, let me my service tender on your lips. <laughs> and she says, away, get the heck away from me, you disgusting creep. I do condemn mine ears that have so long attended thee. I think that's an interesting thing to, to say there. What is this, the nature of words, right? What do words do? And Shakespeare's saying something about the nature and the power of words, of speech. What we listen to, what we hear, um, has an influence on us. And not to be mindful of that is to make ourselves in some ways vulnerable to manipulation. Um, are you mindful about what you listen to and watch? Um, it doesn't mean you should be just watching Disney movies. Um, people who watch Disney movies um, thoughtlessly can probably get themselves in a lot of danger as well. What's being said here is, are you thinking about what you're hearing? If you're thoughtful and if you have a critical ear, you will avoid being manipulated by the messages that are coming at you. Now, I've talked about this in other lectures, but this is the whole nature of critical thinking. Part of this is, 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 the, is the nature of critical thinking. What does it mean to be a wise citizen? And part of this is what Shakespeare is attacking here. A wise citizen will listen critically to the words of his culture, of his society, and he will not accept them at face value, but he will rather, or she will rather, think through them thoughtfully. And be thoughtful about the messages and the expectations and the teaching that is coming from culture. Teaching that wants to shape us in the way we see ourselves, the way we see others. Teachings about the way we should interact with others, the way we should seek power, and so forth. And here Imogen says, I condemn my ears that have so long attended thee. Um, I don't want be influenced by your poisonous language. Uh, she believes Yachimo is speaking a poisonous language to her that is um, unfit for, for smart, thoughtful ears. Um, all right, so this is uh, 
this is a great scene, but Yachimo is not done, is he? No, he is not done. And so she, uh, you know, kicks him out, and he says to her, um, hey, uh, by the way, I, I have this, um, this trunk that I brought. It is full of, of goods and so forth. Um, w- would you mind just holding this trunk for me? Um, let's see here. Where does it says, um, Some dozen Romans of us and your lord, the best feather of our wing, have mingled sums to buy a present for the emperor, which I, the factor for the rest, have done in France. Tis plate of rare device and jewels of, of rich and exquisite form, their value is great. And I am something curious, being strange to have them in safe stowage. May it please you to take them in protection. We have... Uh, several of us have, have put together this care package, if you will, this, uh, this present for the king. Um, can I keep it in your bedchamber? Because um, I think it will be safe there, he says to her. And she says, okay, no problem. Um, that's fine. But what is he doing? He's creating what we, we would call the Trojan horse. And if you've read your, if you've read your uh, Aeneid, uh, Iliad, Odyssey, Aeneid, written by Virgil, actually. Uh, Iliad and Odyssey, written by Homer. Um, Aeneid uh, kind of goes into this story of the Trojan horse. We don't see this in the Iliad, um, but in, the, in Virgil's Aeneid, it's about the Greek and Trojans, right? The, the Greek um, city-states, Greece versus Troy. And one of the, the way that, that Greece conquers Troy Troy has these walls that are just, you can't break through. And they spend years trying. And finally they have this trick. They create this giant Trojan horse as an honor, as a gift to the Trojans. Here, we concede. You've fended us off. We're going to go home now. But we leave you with this this present, this giant Trojan horse. This is for you and for your king. Um, take it and um, as our gift. And, uh, and thank you for many years of battle. <laughs> That's a funny way to put that. But nonetheless, the Trojans are duped by this. And they say, oh, look at that. What a beautiful horse. Let's bring it inside the city walls. Let's bring it inside the Trojan walls, inside the walls of Troy. And so they bring it inside. And you may have heard this story before, but when they bring the the horse inside, they leave it inside the city walls. Then they close the city walls and lock them, just in case those Greeks are trying to do a another attack, a sneak attack. And then when night falls, who comes creeping out of the horse? All the Greek army, right? Some of the most valiant of the Greek army come out of the Trojan horse. They sneak out and they open the city walls and they attack and they defeat Troy and they burn it to the ground. Well, here, this is called intertextuality. That's a good term for you to know. Intertextuality. Here's a reference in some ways to this battle against Troy and the use of the Trojan horse, right? Because Yachimo says, ah, will you take this trunk into your bedchamber? The bedchamber being kind of like the Trojan walls that are impenetrable, right? Um, Imogen, her honor cannot be penetrated by Yachimo. Her character and and her her thoughtfulness cannot be defeated by this, this foe. So he, he seeks to, to trick her in a way. And, and by tricking her, um, he is going to be tricking 
Le uh, posthumous Leonatus as well, right? And so he says, will you take this trunk into your bedroom? She says, okay. And so how does he get in there? He is in the trunk. He is in there. And so when they, they bring him, when they bring the trunk into her room, he is hiding in there. And he waits until night, until she has fallen asleep. And it says here, this is Act 2, Scene 2, Yachmo from the trunk. He says, ah, the crickets sing, and man's o'er-labored sense repairs itself by rest. Our Tarkin thus did softly press the rushes, ere he wakened the chastity he wounded. Cytherea, how bravely thou becomest thy bed, fresh lily, and whiter than the sheets. Um, he's talking about Aphrodite, Cytherea. He's talking about um, uh, another reference to a different work, um, uh, Sextus Tarquinius, a Roman who in the, in the legendary past raped a woman named Lucretia. Uh, and Shakespeare write, writes a poem called The Rape of Lucretia. Uh, but uh, that's a different story. But that's, that's a different story about the assault on a woman's virtue. But here he is coming out of the, of the trunk, right? Coming out of the Trojan horse that has allowed him access into her bedchamber while she's sleeping, while she is exposed, while she is vulnerable. And he says, that I might touch, but kiss, one kiss. And we picture him kind of walking around her bed, right, as she's sleeping. Rubies, unparagoned, how dearly they do it. Tis her breathing that perfumes the chamber thus. The flame of the taper bows toward her and would underpeep her lids to see the enclosed lights. Now canopied under these windows, white and azure laced with blue of heaven's own tint. But my design to note the chamber. I will write all down. I think he knows that he cannot rape her. He's not a murderer, but he's definitely a creepy guy. And, and the way he, he writes down her, a description of her is almost like a literary raping, if you will, a liber literary assault on her virtue. And so he writes down, as he says, such and such pictures, there the window, such the adornment of her bed, the arras, figures, why such and such? And then he says, ah, but some natural notes about her body above 10,000 meaner movables would testify to enrich mine inventory. His main goal now is to convince posthumous Leonatus that he has had sex with Imogen. And how will he do that? Well, he has to get details about her body, right? And this is where it's kind of creepy. O oh, sleep, thou ape of death, lie dull upon her and be her sense but as a monument, thus in a chapel lying. He, he takes her bracelet carefully there too. And then he says, um, On her left breast, a mole, sink spotted, like the crimson drops in the bottom of a cowslip. Here's a voucher stronger than ever law could make. This secret will force him think I have picked the lock and taken the treasure of her honor. So these details, he's saying, oh, this is going to totally trick posthumous Leonatus. And this, this uh, metaphor, picked the lock and taken the treasure, is a metaphor for uh, sex, right? Um, that he has inserted his key or his tools in the lock, if you will. That is a, a metaphor for sexual intercourse. Um, and in this, in this just kind of further uh, showing Yachimo's kind of creepiness. And then he says, no more. To what end? Why should I write this down that's riveted, screwed to my memory? She hath been reading late. The tale of Tyrius. 
the tale of Tyrius is Tyrius is a mythological king of Thrace uh, who raped his sister-in-law Philomela uh, and then cut out her tongue so that she could not accuse him. It's terrible, terrible, um, uh, terrible story. I mean, it's a, it's a powerful story that Ovid writes in the Metamorphoses, but it's just terribly dark and, and, and violent and sad. Um, but why, why does he reference that? Well, this is, what, this is what Imogen has been reading. She's been reading this dark tale of a woman who is abused, right? And in some ways, I think we are supposed to see Imogen, obviously, as a woman who has been abused by Posthumus Leonatus, whose virtue has been compromised by his Italian wager. Um, but then, even here in this moment, she is in some ways being abused by Iachimo as he writes down a, a description of her, of her body while she's sleeping and, and, and while she's in her bedchamber, which is a private place. He has no business being there. No man would ever be there. This would be a room that would be locked. and No one would be allowed in there except for Imogen in the privacy of her bedchamber. And so this, this act of writing down this description is an act of violation of Imogen, clearly. Um, so what else do we know about this here? Let me just take, take a look at my notes. My, in my notes I'm writing, the text as an oppressor. The text as manipulation, um, words as poison, words as influencing um, our thoughts and the way we see the world around us. Um, the text you hear, the messages, the news, the books, the things you read and listen to have a way of influencing you. And who knows this? Well, in this play, Yachimo, the great manipulator, the great thief, the lying, cheating man that he is, he knows the power of text. And he knows what this kind of description will do to posthumous Leonatus. His poisonous words are a fall on, they're of no, no use with his manipulation of Imogen. She's far too smart. But that's going to open up a whole new contrast between Imogen and posthumous Leonatus. Imogen so far has seems like a like a rock star, right? She is she is strong, she's virtuous, she is a, a powerful woman who who is, is unwilling to hear the poisonous rhetoric, the poisonous words, the poisonous arguments of this fool that she believes is not worthy um, of being with her. And he's not. He's, he is a, an idiot. He is a scoundrel. And what about Posthumus? How will he hold up to this, this text that Yachimo will throw at him? Um, so again, looking at this from 30,000 feet, it's important that we see the contrast. It's important that we see what these guys and gals are expecting from words and text. I think that's a, that's a very important thing that Shakespeare's saying about society. And even about us, the citizens of a society, right? Um, some are easily manipulated. Uh, those who are thoughtful. Those who have learned to think critically. This, is, this play, probably the most of any of Shakespeare's plays, it provides an argument for higher education. Provides an argument for what you're paying for in this class. To learn lessons about what it is to be a wise and thoughtful citizen. 
one who thinks and critiques and is able to break down arguments. You know, you can't get that in trade school. In a trade school, um, in a business program, they don't teach you to break down argumentation. They don't teach you these key rhetorical strategies. They don't, they don't show you uh, stories from, from antiquity in which these great writers are saying, here is how people in our society are failing. Learn from their mistakes. Here is how people in our society are succeeding by thoughtfully considering the facts, the arguments, the facts that they are discovering. Uh, and these people are succeeding because of their critical thought. All right, so one more advertisement for why this class is important and the other classes in your liberal arts degree are very important for that purpose. There is a, a time and a place for a good business class, um, but you need a lot more than that. And, and hopefully, um, hopefully you recognize that and you know it. Uh, this, this deep wisdom we gain from, from these old texts um, make us better citizens, make us better people. And so here, Posthumus is met with Yachimo. And Yachimo's first line to him, Your lady is one of the fairest that I have looked upon. Um, and then he goes on to describe all the things he sees and he saw. And he obviously tells Posthumus that he had sex with her. Um, and Posthumus says in Act 2, Scene 4, If you can make it apparent that you have tasted her in bed, my hand and ring is yours. If not, the foul opinion you had of her pure honor gains or losses, uh, her honor gains or loses, your sword or mine or masterless leave both to who shall find them. Um, if you can prove that you slept with her, you win the bet. Again, this just seems so crass and crude and, and uh, debased uh, of posthumous Leonidas to be a part of this at all. But Yachimo goes on, right? He goes on and he spins a web of text around Posthumus's mind. He gets Posthumus so convinced, so convinced that he has slept with his wife, that Posthumus says here, um, Act 2, Scene 4, Oh no, 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 tis true. Here, take this. He gives the ring. It is a basilisk unto mine eye. A basilisk, that's a mythical serpent. Um, if you looked at that serpent, if that serpent looked into your eyes, it could kill you. It is a basilisk unto mine eye. Kills me to look on it. Let there be no honor where there is beauty, truth where semblance, love where there is another man. The vows of women of no more bondage be to where they are made than they are to their virtues, which is nothing. Oh, above measure false. So he just throws out all women, right? <laughs> Talk about a nice, big, fat generalization fallacy. Posthumus says, Oh, women are all false, mine included. And this is obviously very foolish, right? And Shakespeare is playing with this idea of this generalization, this, the foolishness of Posthumus has many different degrees, one of them being just this passionate kind of ignorance. Um, even his friend Filario says, Wait a minute, wait a minute. Have patience, sir. Uh, Tis not yet one. Um, this, this is not good enough. And Posthumus says, oh, oh, oh okay, yeah, very true. Um, uh, well, okay. Uh, render me some corporal sign about her, more evident than this, for this was stolen. But already we see Posthumus is cracked. He is a, a tree that is, is, a, is on the edge of falling. And so Yachmo just says, okay, well, how about this? 
she's got a little, she's got a little, um, under her breast, uh, there's a little mole. Ah, uh, yeah. I kissed it, and it gave me present hunger to feed again, though full. You do remember this stain upon her? And then Posthumus is like, just falls flat like that tree all the way down. Boom! <laughs> and he says, I, and it doth confirm another stain as big as hell can hold, were there no more but it. Um, Yachmo says, will you hear more? No. Posthumus says, I'm done. Um, and then he says what? He says, is there no way for men to be, but women must be half workers? A half worker, that's a hypocrite, or that is someone who, that is someone who um, says one thing but does another, that is someone who two times, and so forth. He says, we are all bastards, and that most venerable man which I did call my father was I know not where when I was stamped. Some coiner with his tools made me a counterfeit. Yet my mother seemed the Diane of that time, so doth my wife, the non-pareil of this. Oh, vengeance, vengeance! And then he moves all the way down to the bottom, saying, I want to kill her. He wants to kill Imogen now. So he, he moves, talk about a drastic swing, the crossing of a key threshold, where now we have a posthumous Leonatus who is not the great thinker that he was once, he is not the great character that he was once, but now he is a wagering idiot who has given up his mind and his heart, and now his passion is dedicated to the destruction of his wife. Unlike his wife who says, revenge? Why would I get revenge in this way? He says, revenge! I will have her killed because she has shamed me. And so this, this contrast is very important, right? Um, this contrast between posthumous Leonatus and Imogen is very important. All right, so we're at minute 30 now, and the next lecture we'll have to look closely at Bellarius, Guiderius, and Avaragus, uh, which is a good section, but I think I'll save that for the next time, and we'll, we'll, finish, we'll finish with the next one. But um, yeah, keep enjoying the play. Bye now.